بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير أما بعد الحمد لله we have reached page 91 correct so this previous chapter or section that we began in our last class is titled nature's love for the prophet sallallahu alaihi wa alihi wasallam so when we look through this chapter or this section we see that it's fairly simple in that the author has presented mostly hadith narrations which demonstrate that different things in creation in nature have love for the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and we began by talking about the nature of animate and inanimate objects and how within these animate objects that are not human as well as inanimate objects like trees and stones there is still for them a level of cognition there's there's some we wouldn't call it aql in the same way we describe human beings but they have a sort a sort of intelligence there's a, there's an awareness there's a life with them and they have their own way of worshiping allah their own way of praising allah and this is a quranic belief because allah mentions in the quran ولكن لا تفقهون تسبيحهم you don't understand their glorification their tasbih now that applies to birds and ants and we know of the the hadith or the ayat that speak about sulaiman alayhi salam conversing with different creatures so it's possible that allah ta'ala could lift the veils where a person could understand that language it's also possible that Allah could lift the veils and actually perceive the tasbih of inanimate objects. So that's well established within the sunnah. It's also a rational possibility. So this section presents different narrations that attest to this reality, showing that not only do the human beings have love for the Prophet sallallahu but also uh, things in nature. So we talked about the tree trunk and the pebbles in those narrations in the previous class, and we left off talking about the famous hadith of the date palm trunk. And this is a mutawatir narration, meaning the incident of the moaning of the date palm was not witnessed by one or two companions who were the only ones transmitting that experience, it was witnessed by dozens, all of whom narrate different wordings of the same incident, which means that when you say it's mutawatir, you have hadith, the majority of hadith are ahad, meaning they come from a singular route of transmission. Right? Most hadith are going to come you know, two or three sahabi, maybe, maybe one, maybe two. But then you have hadith, which are a single incident 
or a single statement or action that was witnessed and transmitted by dozens of Sahaba. So what's the difference between the Ahad Hadith and the Mutawatir Hadith? Well, if both of them are Sahih or Hasan, then we take them for what they offer of guidance. However, one is going to be stronger than the other. So this is relevant in different areas, particularly in areas of belief or areas of halal and haram. That distinction is, is, is there. So for our purposes here, it doesn't really make a difference. But by saying that the hadith is mutawatir, it shows you that it actually has the same textual authority, the same level of textual authority as the Qur'an itself, right? So it's a very strong narration witnessed by so many different people. And the, the main difference between tawatur, the mutawatir hadith and the hadith ahad is that the mutawatir hadith gives you a level of yaqeen of sure and certain knowledge that you do not necessarily find in the hadith ahad. So what that means is it's impossible conventionally for that number of people to all come together and conspire on a lie. What is the capital of Pennsylvania? It's Harrisburg, right? No, not Pittsburgh. Harrisburg. How do you know that? You got it from hearing, but like, how do you really know? It's in all the books, it's in Wikipedia, it's here, there, everywhere. Basically, even if you haven't visited to see for yourself, it's so widespread and common knowledge, it's, it's impossible that so many people would all just conspire to tell a lie and say that the capital is Harrisburg when in fact it's Monroeville. Right, it's just not possible. So that's a point of epistemology. But here we, we finish reading that hadith, which is mutawatir, by the way. So we ended on the last paragraph of page 91. And the author continues by saying, Another tree also yearned to greet the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and it sought permission from its Lord to do so. It is related from Ya'la ibn Murra al-Thaqafi radiallahu anhu. While we were traveling with the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa we stopped to set camp. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa slept when suddenly a tree approached dragging itself across the ground until it engulfed the Prophet it then returned back to its place. When the Prophet ﷺ woke up, we mentioned what had happened, and he said, that was a tree that took permission from its Lord to greet me, and he was granted permission. So this hadith is recorded by Ahmad, Al-Tabarani, Abu Nu'im, Al-Asfahani, and Al-Bayhaqi, and others. And this is one of several narrations. Um, one narration mentions the tree bending forward almost as if it's greeting him in a kind of bowing. Uh, 
And this hadith and others were used as inspiration for some really beautiful poetry that was written by the great Imam Sharafuddin al-Busayri in his famous Qasidatul Burda, Al-Kawakib al-Durriya, Fi Madhi Khayr al-Bariya. And I wanted to read those lines to you because his poem, the Burda, he has a lot of poems, uh, most of these poems being uh, the Madih genre of praising the Prophet Wasallam. He has three major ones. Uh, you have the, uh, or four, you have the Mudariya, you have the Qasida Muhammadiya, you have the Hamziya, and you have the Burda. Now the most famous of those four is the Burda, but the most superior of them in terms of style and language and depth is not actually the Burda, even though the Burda is the most famous. It is the Hamziya. Uh, the reason, I think, the reason why the Burda is more famous is because it's shorter, and it's easier to read. And because of that, it just had wider acceptance. The Hamziya, on the other hand, is much harder. Every last line ends with a Hamza. And it's structured, the meter, the Bahar, is uh, more complex for, for reading than the Burda. The Burda is easy to read. And I think that's the reason why. But in the Burda, he says, uh, Rahimahullah, in the section on the miracles, he says, "Jaat li da'watihi al-ashjar sajidatan tamshi ilayhi ala saqin bila qadami, ka'annama sattarat sattaran lima katabat furu'uha min badi'in khatli bil laqami." He says, everything here rhymes with the meme. So, he says, trees came prostrating to him when he called walking towards him on trunks without feet. So they don't have feet, they're walking. As though they had inscribed lines of splendid calligraphy with their branches along the path. So he's giving you this imagery of this tree walking as it were, although it has no feet, and the branches dragging along in scraping the ground as if they're inscribing beautiful calligraphy with their branches. It's very beautiful. Translations never really give you the full beauty of the wording. Yeah. It's so beautiful. So he draws from these narrations to describe that, to give you that imagery. The author continues, Trees and rocks prostrated to the Prophet ﷺ when he was on a journey with Abu Talib to Syria. This prostration was a prostration of greeting the Prophet ﷺ and was allowed before the call. Now, the trees obviously are not given the commands of Sharia, uh, but either way, this is before the revelation of the Quran and this is before the Sharia before any rulings pertaining to sajda of tahiyyah or greeting were revealed. So, you know, in the previous shara'ir, the previous laws, with the previous prophets, it was actually allowed to make the, uh, what they would call sujood tahiyyah or the prostration of respect or greeting. And you see that in Surah Yusuf, the clearest example in the Qur'an, 
showing that that was something permissible in their shara'ir. So it was the tree greeting, it, greeting the Prophet ﷺ by making this forward movement. Um, so that narration would be the, the inspiration behind the line of the Burda, where he says, Right? Prostrating. It is related from Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiallahu anhu who said, Abu Talib left for Syria and the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa accompanied him as well as the leaders of Quraysh. They came across a monk and they stopped to rest. The monk came out to see them and he had never paid any attention to any previous travelers and had never come out to see them. While they were tying their camels, he began to walk amongst them until he came and took hold of the hand of the Messenger of Allah and then said, This is the Master of Creation. This is the Messenger of Allah, the Lord of the Worlds. This is the one whom Allah will send as a mercy to the creation. The leaders of Quraysh then said to him, And how do you know this? He replied, When you ascended this dune, there was not a tree or a stone, but that it fell in prostration to him, and they do not prostrate to anyone but a prophet. So this hadith is recorded by Tirmidhi and Al-Bayhaqi, as well as Al-Hakim and Ibn Majah. There's a lot of hadith like this. So this is one of uh, a number of hadith which are related in the books of Sirah. In the books of Sirah are drawing from these narrations that talk about the Irhasat, the irhasat being the, the precursors, the muqaddimat, if you will, miracles that occurred prior to revelation as a way of communicating that it is coming very soon. So the irhas would be the miracle that, uh, is, uh, that occurs prior to nubuwa prior to receiving that, uh, that call for being tasked with the, with the Nubuwa and the Risala. Uh, the clearest example is of course the one where he travels as a young boy with Abu Talib and they're shaded by the clouds. And that occurred more than once. Uh, when he was later in his life, he did the same for Sayyidah Khadija and the same thing happened. You have narrations like this and these are all from the Irhasat. So when we talked about the types of miracles, or the types of kharqul ada, the breaks from empirical norms. We listed out a whole bunch of these. So you have the mu'jiza, you have the karama, you have the ma'una, you have the irhas. So of these, the irhas would be miracles that they presage or they are precursors to uh, him receiving the mantle of nubuwa, risala, being given the message to deliver. So this is another example. But the author mentions that this is not just a one-time thing that happened early on. He says, trees prostrated on many occasions to the Messenger of Allah wasallam." is related from Ibn Abbas عنهمه, who said, a man who was a healer came from uh, Banu Amir to the Prophet The man said, O oh, Muhammad, you say certain things, so would you like me to heal you of this? You see where this is going? So he receives the wahi. Allah gave him the Qur'an, and he's calling people to this. 
And what are, how are Quraysh responding? Many of them are saying, Sahirun or Majnun. They're saying Majnun. So this person is just hearing the talk on the, in the town in these you know, allegations. So he goes to him saying, well, you're saying these things, so apparently you are possessed, so allow me to heal you, get rid of this for you. The Messenger of Allah called him closer and then said to him, Would you like me to show you a sign? The Messenger of Allah then called a cluster of branches from a tree and it approached. Upon every step it was prostrating and then standing and then prostrating and then standing until it reached the Prophet it then stood before the Prophet and he said, Return back to your place. And it returned to its place. The man then said, I swear by Allah, I will never belie, deny, anything that you say after this ever again. Abu Ya'la has related it with a Sahih Isnad and his Musnad. Ibn Hibban has also declared it Sahih. So another narration. The tree expressed its love for the Messenger of Allah وسلم, by prostrating itself before him and by, it present, and by presenting its greetings of peace to him. Likewise, it expressed the intensity of its love for the Prophet وسلم, by bearing witness to the truth of the message. It's related from Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhumah who said, we were with the Prophet ﷺ on a journey when a Bedouin came. When the Bedouin came close to the Prophet ﷺ, he asked him, he asked the Bedouin, where are you going? He replied, I'm going to my family. The Prophet ﷺ said, would you like some good? The Bedouin asked, and what is that? The Prophet ﷺ said, Bear witness that there is no God but Allah, that He is one without partner, and that Muhammad is His servant and messenger. The Bedouin said, Is there anyone who will witness to what you are saying? And is there anyone who will bear testimony that what you are saying is true? The Prophet ﷺ said, This tree. Then the Messenger of Allah ﷺ called it, it was on the edge of, a, of the valley and it came drawing a line across the ground until it stood before the Prophet ﷺ and it bore witness to him three times. It then returned to its place and the Bedouin returned back to his people saying, If they follow me, then I will bring them to you. And if they do not, then I will return and will be with you. So this is recorded by Ibn Hibban. Al-Darimi, Al-Tabarani, Abu Ya'la, Al-Bayhaqi, and others. So this, this particular narration seems to be the inspiration for the line in the Burda, where he talks about it etching lines. So he's drawing from these narrations. So that ends the discussion on the trees. So if you gather these narrations together in the multiple riwayat, you would see that it's not a one-time thing. It happened very early on in his childhood. It happened early prior to the, to the Qur'an being revealed. It happened after. It happened later in the da'wah, encountering different Bedouins when out and about traveling. 
So there's a number of incidents like this uh, witnessed and transmitted by the Sahaba. If we counted all of them, I mean, maybe we can count five or six incidents, perhaps. I don't know what would the exact count be, but that's what it appears to be from the narrations. Now, the next example is one that everybody knows, and that is the splitting of the moon. Now, what is the moon? What is the material of the moon? You could say it's a rock, right? So just as the stones here on earth testify to their love for the Prophet ﷺ, likewise the moon. And he says here that another example of the love of, crea- of creation for the Prophet ﷺ is their response to the Prophet ﷺ and support of him. This is indicated with the splitting of the moon upon, upon his blessed gesture after the Quraysh asked for this sign. It is related from Anas ibn Madik radiallahu anhu who said, the people of Mecca asked the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to show them a sign, so he split the moon. This is in Bukhari al-Muslim. And in the hadith of Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu is the wording that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said to his companions, bear witness, bear witness. The Noble Qur'an has mentioned the miracle of the splitting of the moon. Allah has said, and this is in Surah Al-Qamar, right? It's named at the Surah, it's the namesake. Uh, the hour is nigh, is near, and the moon is cleft asunder. But if they see a sign, they turn away and say, this is but transient magic. They denied and followed their inclinations. But every matter has its appointed time. There has already come to them information in which there is deterrence. Extensive wisdom, but warning does not avail them. So, we, you know, we go back to the fundamental point of miracles. And what is the point of miracles in the first place? But why should the norms be broken? What purpose does that serve? Right. So there's opposition, right? There is tahaddi, there's a challenge, there's opposition. And these miracles are ways by which Allah Ta'ala breaks those patterns. And it is a way by which Allah confirms the truthfulness of the prophet or messenger, right? The, the imams in theology, when they talk about the miracles, they say that the miracles are one of Allah's ways of saying to people, sadaqa abdi fi kulli ma yuballighu anni. They say that you know, this servant is truthful in everything he conveys about me, right? And in our class a couple of years ago, Foundations of Certitude, we had a long session, maybe it was two sessions, all about miracles and how they establish the sidq or the truthfulness of the prophets and messengers. So they, they serve a function, right? And miracles, we would call these mu'jizat because they can't be imitated. They're not replicated. 
a challenge is given and it can't be responded to or prevented. But there's other miracles that we don't call mu'jizat, we will call them karamat. And what's the difference between the two? We would say that the mu'jizat is for a prophet, but a karama would be for a follower of a prophet. So those karamat that were experienced by the sahaba, when you look at them in their totality, they are actually still miracles of the Prophet And the reason why we say that is they were honored by these karamat because of their following of the Messenger of Allah It was Allah's support for them in different times of, of distress. Now, they didn't have as many, right, as those that came later, right? And there's a very extensive study on karamat in the two-volume work, Jami' Karamat al-Awliya by Sheikh Yusuf al-Nabahani in, in two volumes. And the first, uh, the first quarter or third of the book in volume one is just a study of the theological foundations of, of miracles, and their types and reasons and their reoccurrence across time, right? So the clearest and the, the most astounding of the, of the miracles would be the mu'jizat because they're coming in the face of direct opposition when the Messenger of Allah is conveying the risala. So what comes after tends to be karamat in the form of assistance, ma'una. Uh, divine aid in difficult situations. Uh, it could take other forms as well, but there's a very extensive study on them. He says here that the moon was not the only rock that answered the Messenger of Allah out of love for him. I like how he shifted, like because the moon is a rock, so it's not the only rock, so we could organize this section by talking about the moon first because it's a rock and then other rocks. He says, in fact, the clouds answered him. They're not rocks. Uh, they would gather together out of love and obedience upon the command of their Lord. They would then open and pour in rain and succor the people. This is what has been related by Anas radiallahu anhu who said the people were afflicted with a drought during the time of the Messenger of Allah Once while the Messenger of Allah was delivering a sermon, a Bedouin came and said, O Messenger of Allah, crops have been destroyed, families are hungry, so supplicate for us so that we are given rain. The Messenger of Allah raised his hands and there was not a cloud in the sky. Clouds then began appearing like mountains. The Prophet ﷺ did not step down from his pulpit until I could see rain dripping from his beard. How, how could it be that rain would be dripping from his beard while he's in the masjid? It's just palm, palm tree branches uh, erected over it. So drips in. Yeah. So that tells you how much rain it was. He says it rained that day and the following day and the day that followed that and continued until the following Friday when the Bedouin came 
or it may have been another one, and said, O Messenger of Allah, our buildings are being destroyed, our crops are drowning, so supplicate to Allah for us. The Messenger of Allah raised his hands and said, O Allah, around us and not upon us. Hawalina, right? So this is a famous hadith where, in subhanAllah, it gives you an indication about the nature of human beings. If you're really hot, what do you want more than anything else? You want to be cool. And then you're cool, and you're like, now I'm cold, right? That's the way it is. He says, wherever the Prophet ﷺ moved his hand, pointing to the sky, the clouds split apart. The valleys were flowing with channels of water for a month. No one arrived out of the city except that they were talking of the generosity. This is in Bukhari and Muslim. These were the clouds that answered the noble gesture and also split apart just like the moon did. You see where he's going with this. So he's talking about how, okay, he points at the moon, it splits. He points at the clouds and they split and they stop the rain. And of course, everything is bihawlillahi wa biqudratillah, it's by Allah's power. These are miracles Allah gives the Prophet This is Allah's doing, but it shows the obedience that the clouds had, as well as the moon, to the gestures of the Prophet Now here he gets to a very interesting section, and to the best of my knowledge, there doesn't seem to be anything in any translated books on seerah that talk about this. So this may be the first time this appears in English. And it, it seems kind of counterintuitive. It seems kind of odd to read these narrations, but they do exist in the classical books of Sirah uh, and the Maghazi works. I'll read the section and then we'll just unpack it just slightly. He says, even the idols which people worshipped besides Allah would glorify with the praises of Allah. They also love Allah and love those whom Allah loves. They also love the Messenger of Allah and answered him like all the other inanimate objects. For on the day of the victory of Mecca, there were 360 idols around the Kaaba. And the Prophet pointed to each of them with his bow one by one, whilst reciting, Say, truth has arrived, and falsehood has perished, for falsehood is bound to perish. So, uh, how do you make sense of this narration? It's very, very easy. Okay, imagine you have a stone, a large stone on some hill somewhere in Arabia. We said the stones have their own cognition, they have their own tasbih, don't they? They're all ibadullah, right? Allah establishes that in the Qur'an, that to everything in the heavens and the earth, everything in the heavens and the earth prostrates to Allah Ta'ala, taw'an or karhan, right? Willingly or unwillingly. So the stones are creations of Allah, they glorify Allah. So imagine you're a stone, and you're living out your full essence of stoneness. You're just there as a stone. 
for year after year after year after year. And you know, you're doing your tasbih in the way Allah created you. And then one day, some people come and they pick you up. They carry you off. And they take you somewhere. And they take out some metal tools and they start chipping away at you and shaping you into a, a, a human-like figure. And then they start painting you and they put something else around you and flowers and then they put you near the Kaaba. And now they start praying to you. As a stone, you, you can't run away necessarily. You're a stone, where are you going to go? Would you be happy as a stone to, to be like that? No. So the, the worship of the idol worshippers is obviously false. But the object that they've taken as worship, whether it is a tree trunk or a stone, well, that's a creation of Allah. Right? Its purpose is fulfilled in just the way it is. You think it's happy like that? No. So this is how you would contextualize it. So there's narrations like this, which indicate that uh, prior to the, the revelation of the Qur'an, there, there are incidents recorded in the seerah, transmitted by different uh, jahili figures, of them hearing some of the idols say things that were quite shocking to them about the falsehood of what they're doing and the coming of a final prophet that will eradicate all of this. There's a lot of this. And sometimes they're even saying it in poetry, in Arabic poetry. If you go to the seerah of uh, Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Hisham, uh, these earlier seerahs, you find a lot of this stuff compiled. And Ibn Kathir has it as well. Uh, Sheikh Zaini Dahlan has a nice collection putting all of these narrations together. You know, the poetry, the things that people heard, all of these things indicating the arrival, the imminent arrival of someone who is going to eradicate this business of idol worship, coming from the idols themselves. So people haven't really heard of this, but it exists in the Cedar works. And what it points to is the fact that these things, even though they've been transformed into idols, the stones themselves don't want this. They don't like it. And they themselves have this love for the Messenger of Allah And so on the day of Fath Mecca, when he enters the, the Kaaba, the area around the Kaaba, what does he do? There's 360 idols positioned around the Kaaba. He points at them with his bow and he recites that ayah and they all tumble one after the other, boom, boom, boom. That is Allah Ta'ala giving them the ability, creating within them this ability to just f fall. So they, they crumble, they crack, they break. They're no longer objects of worship besides Allah. And they return as ordinary stones broken into bits and they're taken away. But that was a miracle Allah gave uh, as a demonstration of their own love and obedience to the command of the Prophet Sallallahu to tumble. And it came in the time of Allah's choosing. It wasn't before, right? Because you have to establish it through, through arguments, through proofs, through evidence, through the discourse of the Qur'an. And people accept and some people reject. But then ultimately when there's ascendancy and you have control, it gets rid of them.
through this way. That's how you would interpret the, those incidents. Uh, because the idols themselves are just, they're lifeless forms, but they still have a kind of life in a sense that all creatures have a tasbih that we don't necessarily understand. So that's how you'd interpret those. Um, the, the next section is like he's gone from the moon to the, to the clouds, right? So from higher to lower. And he goes from stones to dust, which is really the broken up pieces of particles, right? He says, the dust also answered the Messenger of Allah وسلم, because of its desire and yearning for him. When the Prophet وسلم, took a handful of dust or pebbles, he threw it in the faces of the disbelievers, and there was not a single one of them except that the dust entered his eyes or his mouth. They were all defeated. It is related from Salama, here it says Salama, should be Salama ibn al-Akwa' radiallahu anhu, who said, we were in a battle with the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa and we faced the enemy. I stepped forward and a man from the enemy faced me. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, dismounted his mule and grabbed a handful of soil. He then threw it at the enemy and said, Shahatil Right, this is from the Quran. May their faces be disfigured. Allah did not leave a single one of them except that his eyes were filled with that dust. From that handful, they turned away and Allah had defeated them. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, divided the spoils among the Muslims. This is recorded by Imam Muslim. And we know the verse that speaks about this incident in Surah Al-Anfal. It is not you who threw, but it is Allah who threw. And conventionally speaking, if you have a handful of dust or small pebbles and you throw it, it's only going to go a certain distance. It's very unlikely that it's going to go all the way across to the other side of the enemy lines and not just affect those in your immediate direction, but also everyone else on the line. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala caused those pieces to go into their eyes. So he uses this example to show that they like the stones, or like the clouds, or like the moon, are submitting and acting in a miraculous way, and this is out of their obedience and out of their love for the Prophet ﷺ. They're honored to do this, right? Now, I was reading this narration uh, some time ago, and it reminded me of some, something I came across many years ago. Uh, there is... Uh, so you have uh, you have this great this uh, great scholar in India who died a long time ago, uh, uh, Sheikh Ahmad Rida Khan, and he was asked about a statement someone had made about the clothes of the Prophet being dusty or dirty, and he didn't like the way it was phrased. He says he's basically teaching people that you can communicate facts but with a very respectful language. 
that recognizes the maqam of the Prophet So he said, how wretched this person who doesn't have enough creativity in his language that he has to say something like that, that his clothes were dirty and dusty. Wouldn't it have been better for him to say that the dust uh, sought closeness to the Prophet by being on his clothes? At the end of the day, it's this, the same basic fact is established that there was dust on his clothes. That's true. He traveled, he fought, he slept on the ground. It's an obvious fact. But one is not really becoming of the high maqam to say, oh, you know, dirty and dusty, you know, things like that. Whereas the other one is just brimming with, with respect and ta'aleem to say, no, they sought refuge and they sought closeness by, you know, being on his clothing. So I like that. That to be sensitive to the language, it's really important. Uh, so he talks about the moon, then clouds, then rocks, and then dust or small pebbles. And now he talks about water. He says, if the life of hearts and spirits have emerged from the Messenger of Allah وسلم, then likewise water, which is the mean of life for bodies, gush forth from his noble fingers. There's some subtlety here in the language. What he's saying, Rasulullah is sababul hayat, sababul hayat al-qalb, and he is the means of the, 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 the heart's spiritual life. And he's the way, following him, loving him, obedience to him. And just as he is the means of hayat for the heart, the means of hayat for the body would be water. And since the means of hayat is through him in the life of the heart, we see also that water gush forth from his noble fingers. This is also a mutawatir hadith. It was witnessed by hundreds of companions. And he gives us the narration from Bukhari, from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu who said we used to consider miracles as a blessing whereas you consider them as threat we were once with the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam on a journey and there was very little water remaining the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said bring all of the remaining water so we brought in a container the little water we had left the Prophet ﷺ then placed his hand in the container and said, Come to the pure and the blessed blessings from Allah. I saw water springing from the fingers of the Messenger of Allah ﷺ. So this is in Bukhari. And there's other narrations indicating that it happened more than once. Exactly. So it happened more than once. Uh, and he mentions that here. He quotes at Imam al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah, who said, the miracle of the spring of water from the fingers of the Prophet ﷺ occurred many times in different places in front of many people. It has been related via many chains, meaning mutawatir. Such a miracle is unheard of among the previous prophets, 
that this water has sprung from bones, veins, flesh, and blood. And it's a very wondrous thing. And this is why the ulama say that the most superior water is, uh, is this water, after which comes the water of Kawthar. Because one comes, it comes directly from him. Allah caused this to manifest in a very strange way where people witnessed it in the hundreds and it filled a cistern in one narration from Jabir. So this is another incident. He then talks about food and we've, we've spoken about this uh, a few times in, in the seerah as well as the shama'il. There's a number of narrations. He brings the same narration from uh, from. Jabir ibn Abdullah. He says, So food also answered the Prophet and increased as he wanted it to. This miracle took place many times in many different places within Medina and outside of it. Now, before I go further, it's worthy to reflect on this. It happened many times in Medina and outside of it. But it was still not the norm. The norm, you see from the seerah, were times of plenty and times of hunger. Were it the case that it was the norm, then there would have been no hunger in Medina. It would have been enough for everybody. But we see it happens here and there. Usually as people are suffering from hunger, it comes right at the end of a, of a hard struggle with hunger and lack of food. Right, so the incident prior to the Battle of Ahzab is when it's Medina in the winter time, they're building the trench, their food supplies are starting to dwindle, and it, they're, they're getting really hungry. They only have a barley and some rancid fat that they're cooking. and the, it's, not, it's not good eating, really. And so that incident happens after people have been suffering from hunger. So a lot of the miracles are coming as a kind of ma'una, an assistance in times of difficulty. It wasn't the norm that, you know, every day this is happening, right? So he mentions this narration from Jabir ibn Abdullah, the famous narration, who mentions that when the trench was dug, I saw the Prophet in the state of severe hunger so I returned to my wife and I said, have you got anything to eat? For I've seen the Messenger of Allah وسلم, in a state of severe hunger. She brought out for me a bag containing one measure of barley. And we had a domestic she-animal, like a, we call that a, you call it in Old English, you call it a house goat or a house sheep. Not that it's inside your house prancing around, but it's domestic. It's outside just eating little things here and there. So he said, I slaughtered it, and my wife ground the barley, and she finished at the time I finished my job. Then I cut the meat into pieces and put it in an earthenware cooking pot and returned to the Messenger of Allah My wife said, do not embarrass me in front of the Messenger of Allah and those who are with him. So I went to him and said to him secretly, O Messenger of Allah, I have slaughtered an animal of ours and we've ground a measure of barley which was with us. So please come and bring another person along with you. One narration says, bring a few people. 
the Prophet raised his voice and said, O people of the trench, Jabr has prepared a meal, so let us go. Uh, in the Arabic, you actually say feast. The Messenger of Allah said to me, Do not put down your meat pot from the fireplace or bake your dough until I arrive. Because if he did that, then everything would have been finished. The fact that it's still uncompleted, this is what he was pointing at. He says, Then I went to my house, and the Messenger of Allah came too, proceeding before the people. When I went to my wife, she said, May Allah do so and so to you. She's basically a little upset. And you know how it is, right? Your husband brings guests unannounced and you haven't done anything to prepare. You haven't even gone shopping. House is a little in a little bit disarray. It's like, what have you done to me? Right? He says, I, I've, I've told the Prophet what, of what you said. Then she brought out to the Prophet wasallam the dough and he placed his saliva in it like this and invoked Allah's blessings in it or on it. Then he proceeded towards our meat pot and blew his saliva in it. This is what we call nefeth. We've explained a few times, right? You have different forms. So one is just blowing like then you have like the full spitting and then in between those you have nefath which is using the tongue like like that that's nefath the hadith that mentions reading the three quls and then doing the nefath and then wiping the body that's what you're doing you're not nor are you you know spitting you're just doing so a little bit of the saliva mixed with the breath that's what he did and he invoked Allah's blessings in it then he said to my wife Call a woman to bake along with you and keep on taking out scoops from your meat pot and do not put it down from the fireplace, from its fireplace. One thousand people took their share and by Allah they all ate. When they left the meal and went away, our earthenware pot was still bubbling full of meat as it had not decreased and our dough was still being baked as if nothing had been taken from it. This is Bukhari and Muslim. So, uh, and there's several narrations like this. Yani Barakah in Ta'am, and in uh, Ta'am would include Halib or Leban, you know, would include the milk, because there's incidents like that too, of it being passed around and not being Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, exactly. So, it's actually 12 o'clock. We could go on to the next section. Maybe we'll. Mm. Yeah, we'll just finish this page. So we'll finish page 100. Uh, this next paragraph, I would probably have put it in the previous section talking about the moon and then the, the dust. Because he talks about rocks. He says, even a rock responded to the blessed strike of the Prophet ﷺ on the day of the trench, and it did not disobey the beloved, Al-Mustafa wasallam. And it turned into grains of sand for him. This was after his companions were unable to break even a small part of it. It is related from Ayman al-Makhzumi who said, I visited Jabir and he said, On the day of the trench we were digging when we came across a very large rock. 
we went to the Prophet and told him about it. He said, I will go down to the rock. The Prophet ﷺ had tied a stone to his stomach, for we had gone three days without having tasted food. The Prophet ﷺ then took hold of a pickaxe and struck the rock, and it turned into a pile of dust. This is in Bukhari as well. There's another narration which talks about three strikes. Uh, it's the same incident. And then the first strike is a flashing, like a spark from the stone. And upon striking it, he is shown a vision of the mulk, the dominion of the ummah going towards the east and then towards the, towards the north, towards Sham, uh, and then towards the Yemen. I'm not, I'm not remembering the order exactly. It might have been Yemen followed by Persia, followed by Sham, but he's had this vision. Um, he then mentions, this will be our final narration, he mentions how a sheep spoke to the Prophet ﷺ after it had been slaughtered out of love and fear for him. So you know, out of love for the Prophet and out of fear for him, out of respect, it actually spoke. Allah enabled it to communicate and for the Prophet ﷺ to hear it and understand it. So Anas ibn Malik relates, a Jewish woman came to the Prophet ﷺ with poisoned meat. We all know this incident. The Prophet ﷺ ate something of it, it's a morsel, and it had been poisoned. The Prophet asked her why she did it, and she said, I wanted to kill you. He said, Allah would not give you power over me. Uh, we'll just read the next part because it's the same incident. Uh, in the hadith of Jabir, as related by Abu Dawood, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said to his companions, Stop eating, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, then summoned the woman and said to her, Did you poison the, this meat? The woman said, Who told you? He said, This piece of meat in my hand informed me. There are many narrations of the talking sheep after it was slaughtered and cooked again out of love and fear for the Prophet وسلم, it feared that it would enter his noble stomach. So you, you, you kind of go back to the idol narration, right? These stones don't want to be like that. Likewise, the sheep is poison. It doesn't want to be, the, you know, the cause for any harm. So Allah lifted the veils and enabled it to communicate to him the fact that it was poisoned. And this is why it was just one morsel and he didn't eat the entire thing only to find out later. Uh, but because he took the morsel, it still had the, the effect of the poison that lingered later on. And we see that happening towards the final year of his life, sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. We'll stop there, because there's another narration about another incident, but it's unrelated to poisoning. Uh, but we'll stop here, inshaAllah. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.